0: You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So as Sarah referenced earlier in our time of worship, there's been a lot that's been in the news cycle this last week. The Olympics, of course, which are wrapping up tonight, but also this news That this amazing man, Billy Graham, such amazing faith is now with the Lord. And you know, one of his quotes that I've heard and and read about this week is he said, Someday you're going to hear that I've died. Don't you believe a word of it. Because I haven't, I've passed from death to life and I'm with Jesus. I thought, man, that, there it is. That's awesome. But what an amazing faith. I mean, just think about this with me, the impact that this man's life has had. It's estimated that since he started his crusades here in our country in 1947, and from there they expanded to a more international scope, but since 1947, of all the living Americans, one out of every six of us attended one of those crusades or heard one of those crusades. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. I don't know how many of you were, were here and living in the area in the 90s. I think it was 93 when, when Billy Graham came here for the crusade. You know, that's the only crusade I've ever been, uh, you know, been able to attend that he put on, but it was just it was amazing. But he's put on over 400 crusades over the course of his life. In 85 countries, and fasten your seatbelts for this one, it's estimated that over 215 million people have heard the gospel through this man's crusades. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable, and if that wasn't enough, he has been the confidant of every president since Harry Truman. That's 12 presidents, for those of you who like math, ending with Barack Obama. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable, the impact of this man's life, and it's, it's so easy for us to look at his life and say, not just what amazing faith he demonstrated and lived, but I wish I could have faith like that. And the reality of what Luke chapter 7 is going to remind us once again is that you can. In fact, the very gospel that Billy Graham preached was that I am an ordinary man who God has blessed in an extraordinary way. That was the very gospel he preached. And it's the gospel, it's the reality that we live out And are confronted with once again. There is a common denominator that runs through these four stories in Luke chapter 7. And I wish we had time to look at every single story. Because they reveal something very profound and very significant. About what faith is, how we experience it what, it, what it's like, what it's like, how it impacts our life. The first story we will look at the healing of the centurion's servant. The next story we come to in the chapter is Jesus going to this little backwater, no-name town called Nain, and there is a funeral procession coming out, and there is a, a young man who has died. He's the only son of. His mom, who is a widow, so she has lost her only means of support and really a great source of her security, really, as a a single woman in that culture, and Jesus, without anyone asking him, brings the man back to life. It's remarkable. And then the next story is about John the Baptist, who is languishing in prison because he spoke the truth and called Herod out on the, the sin in his life, and so he was imprisoned, and he sends disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are, are, are you the one we were told to expect? And as Sean helped us understand weeks ago, we are to take our doubts, we are to take our uncertainty, we are to take our, our questions about God to God directly. And that's what we see John the Baptist doing. And then in this final story, which we will look at, is the story about a sinful woman who chooses to follow Jesus. And that's what we're gonna look at here this morning are these two stories that really bookend chapter seven because I think Luke very purposefully shows us a contrast between two people. It is the contrast of a man in the centurion who has incredible social standing within his community. This is a good, moral man. He is powerful. He has authority. He is respected. He is regarded And Jesus will look at his faith and say, this is amazing faith. Contrasted with a sinful woman, which in our vernacular means she was a prostitute. This is a woman who has no social standing whatsoever. She is disregarded. She is despised. She is shamed. She is devalued. She has nothing that that culture would have said is of worth to God And yet she will also enter the kingdom of God. And her faith will be commended by Jesus as well. In fact, in verse 9, which we'll get to in just a minute in the whole story, when Jesus is describing the centurion's faith, it says he was amazed at him. He turns to the crowd and said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then when this woman steps over from death to life and chooses to follow Jesus, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace you could not have a greater contrast in two different stories with the same outcome they both enter the kingdom of god so what is amazing faith what does it look like how do you experience it how do you live it out and is it really is it really accessible for us and the answer lies in this chapter we're going to look at so if you have a bible please turn to luke chapter 7 we're going to start with verses 1 through 10 I will read those to you if you have a tablet or phone, get there if you have a hard copy Bible, get there, and i 'll read this to you for those of you who don 't. When Jesus has finished saying, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, and there a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them, and he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. who had been sent, returned to the house and found the servant well. So let's, as Gary constantly encourages us to do, enter the story and look at what's going on here. It says that the centurion's servant is about to die. A couple things here. It says that he was valued highly. And this feels like, with how it's written, that the centurion valued the servant more for what he did than who he was. And that's not true. In fact, exactly the opposite. This means he esteemed him, he, feared, he loved him, he respected him, he honored him. He was, he was dear to him and he's about to die. And we don't know what he was dying from. In Matthew's account, we know that the servant was paralyzed. And what we do know is that he is in his final days, maybe even his final hours, he's, he's dying. And so the centurion sends representatives of the Jewish leadership to ask Jesus to heal him. And notice the attitude here and appreciate the reality that the Romans were the occupying force of the time. They subjugated, they oppressed, they were cruel, cruel authorities. This centurion very reasonably with the social standing he had and the authority he had could have demanded that Jesus come to him and he asks him and he does it in such a humble way. He doesn't even go himself. But look even more closely at this because I think Luke deliberately draws a contrast for us here. Look at the attitude of the centurion versus the attitude of the elders of the Jews. Look how they approach Jesus. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. There's a meta message here. This is a good man. This is a moral man. We owe him. And Jesus, so do you. Because look what he's done for us. Now, because of your generosity, you sent Jamie and I to Israel a couple of years ago, and this is a picture I took of my phone of this very synagogue we're talking about in Capernaum. These are the ruins that have been left behind. And you may not be able to see it on the screen here, and for our friends who might be listening on the internet, they can see this when they pull it up. But... Those lighter colored stones there, those actually do date all the way back to the 4th century. Those are over 2,000 years old. The other stones around it were put there to help us get a feel for how big the synagogue was. Those pillars are from the 4th century, what have you. But it gets even better. This is another picture I took from my phone, from the other side of the synagogue, and you'll notice dark-colored stone there on the ground, but you'll also notice dark-colored stone on the foundation. Folks, most archaeologists believe this is the very first-century synagogue that this Roman centurion helped build. This goes back to Jesus' time. They built that fourth-century synagogue on top of the first-century one. So did the centurion pay for it? Did he finance it? Did he have his servants help build it? Did he even lift some of the stones? We we don't know, but this is what we do know. This is a man who everyone in the community would have said, "This is a good man. This is a moral man." But is that how he views himself? And does he approach Jesus with the attitude that somehow Jesus owes him? In fact, what does he literally say? I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Now, there may have been a little culture going on here because it wouldn't have been appropriate for a Jewish rabbi to enter a non-Jew's home, but especially in this circumstance, but I don't believe that's deep enough here. There's something deeper that Luke is illustrating here. This man, even though he has standing in culture, has no standing with God, and he knows it. And in humility... He says, you don't even need to step inside my house. You just give the word, and my servant will be healed. It's remarkable. And this serves as a reality that we need to make sure we're on the same page with. Faith in Jesus means that we have to appreciate the reality that our faith is in something or someone, and it's true for all of us. Because there's this attitude, and I think it's... it's um, a mistaken perception that some people have, that faith is one of those things that you either have or you don 't. Some people have it, some people don't. Uh, no no, 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 no. Everyone has faith. The real question is, where is our faith? What is our faith in? By way of an example, an atheist who does not believe in God whatsoever has faith. Their faith is in their belief that there is no God. Whatever data they they think they've compiled, whatever substantiation or evidence they believe they have for the fact that there is no God in their mind, that is faith. There is a faith commitment there. But there is a remarkable statement made here by Jesus. It is the only time the Gospels capture this. The only time that we know he said it. He says he was amazed at this man's, Great faith. There's only one other time the gospels say Jesus was also amazed. In Mark 6, 6, in his own hometown, it says he was amazed at the lack of faith of his own people, the very people who knew him better than anyone. We see this centurion with a very profound, very practical, very powerful faith. And we've defined faith like this before in Jesus as believing that whatever he says can absolutely be trusted to the point that the centurion says, you don't even need to come into my house. Just give the word and I know it will happen. Man, that's powerful. So how much faith did the centurion really have? That's a good question. But I'm not sure it's the most important question. Because there is an overemphasis, there is an extreme that happens in our culture that can be a little misleading when it comes to faith. Because in so many ways, we have so subjectified faith and made it so much about emotion that we lose the point. And here here it is. How many times do we hear in our culture, well, it doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you believe in it with all your heart. Just believe. If you really, really believe, then that is good enough for you. Is that how amazing faith is defined? I mean, let's take that for a test drive for a minute. Could there be potential problems with that? What does common sense tell us? Well, by way of simple illustration, story I heard recently, two men are climbing a mountain, they're roped together for mutual support and aid. They both fall. And because they're roped together, they both fall at the same time and they fall to this ledge which saves their life. And now they've got to figure out how in the world they're going to get out of there. And on both sides of this ledge is some rocks that they can secure their ropes and climbing equipment to. And one of them is absolutely certain he knows which way to go. He looks at both rocks and says, in my assessment, this is the strongest foundation. I am absolutely certain this is where we need to go. This is where I'm going. His other friend, his friend who's with him says, well, I'm not so sure. I, I don't know about that. Maybe this one. I'm not sure about that one, but it could be. That I just, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure. Well, the first one says, nope, this is what I'm going to do. Hooks his rope to the rock and starts climbing. The other one says, well, I think I'm going to go this way. Hooks his rope to the other rock. The first man hooked his rope to a rock that wasn't stable, and he fell. The other man hooked his rope to a rock formation that was stable, and he got out. Here's the question, and you can see where this is going. How much did the strength of their faith, the passion of their faith, the emotion behind their faith actually matter? What difference did it truly make? At the end of the day, what is fundamental is that we recognize that the object of our faith matters. And the more I grow in my relationship with the Lord, the more I read his word, the more I'm beginning personally, you check this against God's word and what he's teaching you, but personally, I'm realizing that there are times we overemphasize strength of faith at the expense of the object and direction of our faith, and we cannot do that. The object and direction of our faith matters. And so life is constantly a reorientation of our faith in Jesus, not in myself, not in other things, not in circumstances, not necessarily in what other people tell me, but it is a constant, spirit enabled, God help me with this orientation of my faith in Him. The direction of my faith matters because faith is not just about a new direction, it is about a new foundation. Which brings us to our next story. When one of the Pharisees "'Invited Jesus to have dinner with him, "'he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. "'A woman in that town who lived a sinful life "'learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. "'So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. "'As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, "'she began to wet his feet with her tears. "'And then she wiped them with her hair Kissed them and poured perfume on them. There are a number of astounding things that are happening in this story. So, once again, let's enter the story. You are having a gathering at your house, it's a celebration. You have an honored guest. Let's just even say you're hanging out as a family, but you, there, it's a gathering, to be sure. And all of a sudden, in walks in the last person you would ever expect. They weren't invited. You didn't know they were coming. In this case, it is a prostitute, male or female. Everyone in the town knows who they are and what they do, and they come into your gathering. How would you respond? No self-respecting rabbi or Jewish man, for that matter, would ever have a prostitute of any kind cross the threshold of their home. Not knowingly and not willingly. And here she is. Imagine that for a minute. She comes in through the door. Conversation stops. Everyone's looking at her. What are they thinking? What's not being spoken? And then what does she do? And what this brings to mind for me is Luke chapter 5, which we've already looked at, where these guys have this friend who is paralyzed. And they will do anything to get him to Jesus. And there's this huge crowd inside the house and outside the house where Jesus is, where he's teaching and healing, and they can't get at him. So what do they do? They crawl up on the roof of this house, someone else's roof, by the way, make a hole in it and lower their friend down to get him to Jesus. They go through a hole in the roof she goes through an open door where she's not invited, where there is so much social stigma around her in order to get to Jesus. If that wasn't enough, it says that she had an alabaster jar of perfume. Now this is a little less certain, but in my reading and my understanding, there's some culture that's now beginning to play into this story, which amplifies it even more. In the first century, a number of women wore these little jars around their necks that had ointment in them, and it was a sign of beauty and means, and it was a way that that women could outwardly show that they were beautifying themselves and and, um, that they were presenting themselves that way. When I also was in Israel a couple years ago, we got to go visit an antiquities dealer, and he put in my hand one of these jars that they had unearthed. And I'm sitting there holding that in my hand, and I took that picture with my phone thinking, please do not let me drop this. They will never let me back out of the country. There's no way I could pay for this. But this is the type of jar that women would wear around their neck. And it was highly highly valued and highly prized because it was sealed. There was no air conditioning there. There was no means to preserve something like this. So when you broke it, when you opened it, you had to use it. And it was profoundly expensive, could this have been her livelihood? Because you would use this kind of ointment, this kind of lotion in lovemaking between a husband and a wife. And so this was probably her means and probably all the money she had, quite possibly, around her neck. And not as an act of eroticism, but as an act of passion She now lets down her hair, which, once again, it's important we appreciate and understand this. For a woman to let down her hair in public was considered scandalous. Because to let down your hair as a woman was something you only did in an act of intimacy with your husband behind closed doors. In fact, if a Jewish wife were to let down her hair in public, there were a number of rabbis who believed that was grounds to divorce her. It was one of the highest acts of intimacy. And what does she do? She lets down her hair and then she touches him with it to wash his feet. It's absolutely remarkable what she does to get to Jesus and then to worship him. But that's not where the story ends. When the Pharisee who had invited him, saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Oh, Simon, do you know what you're getting into? <laughs> two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, which was about two years annual salary, and the other 50, about two months of annual salary. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon does some quick math, replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time she entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. By the way, all of those were customary things you would have done to honor a guest. Simon didn't honor Jesus, but this woman profoundly did. So Jesus goes on to say, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Could it be that the greatest healing we continue to see over and over again in the scripture, in these stories as we continue to go through Luke, isn't physical healing. It is the spiritual healing. This is a woman, in contrast to the centurion, who has no standing whatsoever. She is considered by many to be defiled, discarded, disregarded, shamed. She has nothing to offer God in exchange for his love And that is precisely the point. The centurion had no standing with God, and neither does this woman. And yet, knowing that he loves her, she offers him everything she has. Again, I think there is deeper significance that we can miss in this story. When she broke that jar of ointment, She was saying, I give you everything that's defined me. This is what defined my beauty. This is what made me attractive. This was the means I had for what I used to do when I would sell my body. And all that has changed. She has been completely transformed. It's profoundly amazing faith. Just as amazing faith as the centurion. in a gathering of this many of us, there are some of you who are like that woman. Because in your heart of hearts, you know you don't have anything to offer God. In fact, to the point you question as to whether God can truly love you, as opposed to the person who thinks, boy, I'm a good person, I'm moral, God owes me, you're on the other end of the continuum, and there are things in your life, there is brokenness, There is shame. There is guilt that sometimes feels insurmountable. There's no way God could love you through that. But God does not love us because of what we do for Him in terms of earning His approval. God loves us. Period. He does not love the way our world loves, He does not give the way our world gives. He's not like anyone else. You don't earn his love. You choose to respond to it. Some of you know my story, but I chose to follow Jesus when I was in high school. But you may not know what precipitated that. When I was in my final year of middle school, man, I had everything an insecure middle school boy would need To define his life. I was good at sports. I was a good student. I had girlfriends. I had everything going my way and then I went to a four-year high school and all of a sudden in my insecurity I went from thinking I was a big fish in a little pond to now I am a little fish in a big pond. Struggled athletically, struggled for the first time in my life academically, had no girlfriend, which completely unraveled me, completely lost my identity. If that wasn't enough, my dad sat me down and our family down about halfway through the school year and said, we're going to be moving at the end of this next summer. Because my dad was a construction superintendent, every four to five years we would move, he'd get a major job, we'd move there, plant there, and then leave. I've lived all over the state as a result, and now I was gonna be leaving everything that was familiar to me, everything that gave me identity, everything that gave me the foundation of my life. And I had some friends who said, hey, you want to come to this camp and it'll be a last chance for us to go do something together before you move. And I thought, yeah, great. I know they're going to talk about Jesus. I've heard that stuff before, but there's going to be really good food there. My friends will be there. There's cute girls there. Why would I not want to go? So I went to this camp knowing they were going to talk about Jesus. And as I started into this camp, which should have been the time of my life, was one of the most difficult times of my life because in addition to all those other things that I had now lost that had been my identity, my friends who had invited me had already moved on. They knew I was moving, and so they moved on as well. So here I was at this camp, and my friends who I went with spent no time with me whatsoever. I've never felt more lonely and more lost in my entire life. And I remember as this speaker was talking about Jesus, and we were in a gathering not unlike this one. It was a lot of people. And I remember him talking about that this God loved me, and that I didn't earn his love, he gave it to me. All I had to do was respond to it and receive it. And I just knew that's what I needed to do. And so he did something that I still think is one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. He challenged us to stand up to say if we wanted to follow Jesus with our life. And in my insecurity and in my struggle, I thought there is no way I'm going to stand up in a group this size and do that. And please understand, you don't have to stand up in a crowd, thankfully, in order to receive Jesus. But for me, in that moment in my life, it was a defining moment because it put in question everything that I had identified as my foundation of my life. And one of the primary things was now in question, the approval of those around me. What in the world would my family think if I did this? What am I gonna tell them when I go back after this camp? What will my friends think? A number of them who were there In no way wanted anything to do with Jesus. And I'm going to stand up and say, I'm going to follow Jesus with my life, and I'm so glad that I did. I stood up that day, and I have never regretted it. And one of the amazing things about this story, especially with Simon, is we don't know how it ends. I realized a couple of days ago as I was reading this passage, it says that the other guests were the ones who questioned Jesus' authority and ability to forgive sin. But do you know whose name was missing? Simons. How did you respond after Jesus basically proclaimed the kingdom to him in the example of the story he said and in the example of the woman whose sins he forgave. What was the conclusion of Simon's story? I think Luke very deliberately doesn't tell us. We don't know. But this is what you can know. And that is the conclusion of your story. Will you proverbially stand up and follow Jesus with your life? Some of you, probably most of you, already have. Then for you and me, what our daily journey in following and loving Jesus is like is a constant reorientation of our faith and trust in him. We will constantly be tempted to put our faith and trust in ourselves or our comfort or the things we have or what other people think about us or what hangs on our wall or sits in our driveway or hangs in our closets. No, our faith is in Jesus and we need his help to reorient that faith, redirect that faith, ground that faith exclusively, unapologetically, in him each day of our lives. However, there are some of you who you have not made Jesus the foundation of your life by receiving him into your life as your Lord and Savior. You can write that story today by choosing to respond to his love for you. So as our worship team comes, I want to encourage you and bless you and free you to respond in a number of ways. Number one, if you have not received Jesus into your life, what in the world are you waiting for? There is nothing better, nothing better, if you hear nothing from this sermon but this, nothing better than knowing Jesus Christ. It is the most important decision you could ever make in your life. It's time to make it. He is calling you and asking you if you will follow him. For those of us who have made that choice, man, worship him, enjoy him, listen to him, soak him in. This is your time and your space and your place to do just that. Off to the sides we have communion. Would you get up if the spirit so leads you, and go take communion, remind yourself of a God who loves you so much he's willing to sacrifice himself in order to, to free you from brokenness and sin and rise again in order to give you life, life now and life in the future. But also up front here, we have these crosses. And I would encourage you to come up and to write down what is that brokenness, what is that sin, what is those old clothes as the Bible describes them that you find your heart gravitating back to as a source of your faith, as a source of your trust. Maybe it's comfort or stuff or approval or I don't know what you would write down there, but as the Spirit leads you, would you write that down and would you put that on one of these crosses to remind yourself, I don't have to live like that anymore. But let's worship him together. Would you stand with me as we prepare to do so? Jesus, I am so grateful that you were the God who first loved us. You come to us in our brokenness On our best day, we have no standing with you. I mean, Lord, I'm grateful that you make us in your image, that there is some good in us, but it is so marred and distorted and broken by our sinfulness, by our selfishness. God, thank you that we don't have to live like that. Thank you for the joy and hope we have in you. Would you help us once again to make you our foundation? Lord, for anyone here who has never made that defining moment decision to follow you, that today... They would make you their foundation. And we would celebrate together the God who loves us and the God who is with us, our Emmanuel, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.